0: Hi, guys. We're going to talk today about the intersection of religion and mental health, and it's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. But most importantly, I wanted to put a note up top that if you're listening to this and you're struggling or know someone who's struggling with mental health, the most important thing you can do is know the amazing resources available out there for getting help and support. And two in particular, my guests and I wanted to call attention to are the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, and the United Way. And with that, enjoy the pod.
1: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And folks, we have the amazing Heather Sells with us today, lead anchor for Newswatch on CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, and their senior national affairs correspondent. And Heather's also writing a book on church and culture collaboration to address mental health. And that's actually what I wanted to talk about today. So about a week ago, a rabbi friend of mine and I were texting back and forth about Resources for Dealing with Trauma. And he reminded me of this incredible story from two years ago that took place at the Invictus Games, an international athletic competition for wounded, injured and sick servicemen and women, both active duty and veterans. And so it's the middle of a wheelchair doubles tennis match between a team from the U.S. and a team composed of a player from the Netherlands, Edward Vermetten and one from the UK, Paul Guest, who had served in the Royal Navy and was diagnosed with severe PTSD after his discharge. So the Americans start off strong, but eventually Guest and Vermetten start clawing their way back. But just before a crucial serve, a helicopter flies overhead, and you start to see the trauma creep into Paul Guest's eyes, and he completely freezes up. He's having a PTSD episode. And his teammate, Edward Vermetten, sees this, and he springs into action in the most amazing way. He comes up to Guest, he holds him, he puts his head against his, and he tells him everything's going to be okay and that he's here for him. And then he asks Guest if he knows the song Let It Go from Frozen, and they start singing it together. And finally, Paul Guest is able to collect himself, and he delivers the winning serve to finish off the match. And I find this story totally captivating. It's such a small moment, and it involves what you might otherwise dismiss as a children's song, but it tells you so much about the sometimes terrible weight of the human condition, of how unbearably heavy experience can sometimes be, but also about how important our fellow humans, our friends, our community members, our family can be in helping us bear that weight. You know, we've been speaking a lot lately in good faith effort about the book of Leviticus, And one of the central topics in the first half of the book is how to treat this mysterious disease called Sarat. The King James Bible translates it as leprosy, but that's likely incorrect. All we know is that it was a contagious skin condition, but more than that, we're not certain. But what's most interesting about the disease is actually how we're supposed to respond to it. So you'd think for a contagious disease, what you need to do is isolate, basically quarantine until it's over. And that is what the Bible demands, but it also requires you to bring all these sacrifices in the temple once you've healed from the disease. And these sacrifices are actually quite similar to the ones that Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons brought when they first became priests, which was obviously a really happy occasion. So why is this? Why is there like this celebration when you heal from this disease, right? We don't do this every time we heal from an illness. And I think the answer lies in the fact that in order to heal from the disease, you had to be isolated for so long. You're in quarantine for so long. And the Bible understands how difficult loneliness is, how hard isolation can be on the human spirit. And so prescribe that when you emerge from this period of loneliness, when you're able to come back into the arms of family and community, that's a reason to celebrate. And that teaches us a lot about how to heal from loneliness, and that is through community, through a caring support system that takes human suffering in all its dimensions seriously, not just physical, but mental and spiritual as well. And that doesn't stigmatize suffering, but that seeks to heal it. And especially in the wake of a terribly stressful and lonely and isolating year for so many of us, I can't think of a more important topic to address. So... I invited on one of the best people I know to help us think about it, the lead anchor for Newswatch on CBN and their senior national affairs correspondent, who's been such a public voice on all these kinds of things, as well as the author of an upcoming book on church and culture collaboration to address mental health. My friend, the remarkable, the incredible Heather Sells. Heather, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It's very fun. So Heather, what got you interested in mental health and the church and the culture and how we can collaborate to be helpful in that area, to really be leaders in that area? I mean, you do so much. You're, you're involved in news media, political affairs. What drew you to this area?
1: Well, I'm going to cut to the chase and just tell you that my husband <laughs> got me interested because he is a psychologist and professor at Regent University. And to be completely fair, he is really the driving force behind this book, and he has asked me to come along and really do my reporting work with respect to innovative things that are happening in the church with respect to mental health. But he and I have had conversations, of course, over the years about mental health, and especially Ari in recent years, as we have just seen I hate to use the word crisis because it's so cliche and it's so overused, if you will. But really, that's what we've been seeing in this country with respect to mental health. And then now you layer on the pandemic and the research that is coming out, early research that's coming out with respect to mental health in this pandemic is even more concerning. So it's something that we all have to address. And I think it's something that we are all more aware of than ever, as we have all to some degree experienced our own mental health concerns, struggles, challenges in this
0: last year. One of the things that I thought deeply about as you know, I was preparing for our conversation is the role of the pandemic. So, you know, you have, as you mentioned, all this very preliminary but very alarming research. The Kaiser Family Foundation notes that during the pandemic, about four in 10 adults in the U.S., have, you know, consistently reported symptoms of anxiety or depression, uh, which is up from one in 10 in 2019. Uh, You have a poll from July 2020, also from the Kaiser Family Foundation, that found that many adults are specifically reporting difficulty sleeping or eating, alcohol consumption, substance abuse, worsening chronic conditions due to stress and worry uh, about COVID and its after effects like uh, financial recession. So, While on the one hand, we're all getting shots and things are starting to loosen up a little bit. And it's amazing. I mean, it's something that I I thank God for every day. Mm -hmm. And in in many ways, it's so easy for those of us for whom getting the shot is the only solution we need to feel like this is over. But in many respects, we may be staring down sort of a second wave, not of COVID, but of COVID-related after effects. So how can we... First of all, how do you see the next stage of after effects from COVID developing in the coming you know, year or so? And what can we do as a as a country and particular as people of faith to be there for the people who might in some respects, you know, be left behind by this joy of coming out of COVID?
1: Well, the silver lining, I think, of COVID is that it's forcing, driving innovation and creativity, if you will. That's the upside of it. Uh, We're having to think outside the box because the box doesn't look like it used to. And so here's the hope that I have for mental health in this country is that we are going to see an emergence of the church, of faith communities, coming alongside people in new and innovative ways, as you alluded to in a, in your example. And we are already beginning to see that happening in this country. We are already beginning to see that uh, happening before the pandemic. So let me just backtrack briefly and tell you the big idea of the book and the big idea of the book, which... Began before the pandemic was that we have a mental health crisis in this country, and we don't have enough therapists to meet with every person for an hour a week who needs help. No way, no how. There, there's not the resources, the money, the time. We could never train all these therapists. So, in the absence of that, how do we treat these growing mental health problems? And the, the big idea of the book is the faith community, is Christian therapists coming alongside churches which are in every zip code in this country to think, how can we address uh, the needs that you are seeing? And this can be as simple as a therapist consulting with a youth pastor about cutting in the youth group and and how can this youth pastor talk about it with kids? Uh, so, my part of the book has been to research and find out what is already happening on the ground. What are we already seeing outside of the traditional therapist's office, ways that churches are collaborating with therapists in communities to meet mental health needs? And that is what has been exciting for me to discover, Ari, and that is what I'm excited to share about in this book. And that's also, I think, the hope that we have coming out of this pandemic is people getting just a little bit of training that allows them to open their eyes, to see the needs right around them and to address them in ways that are actually effective. And and we all know also, Ari, that you know uh, people's mental health journeys start before the therapy session and they go after they end their relationship with their therapist. So we're looking at people's lives and people who can walk alongside each other in the ongoing struggles.
0: So it's so interesting that you say this. It's fascinating. I mean, I remember when I was in Uh, rabbinical school at Yeshiva University, one of the major transitions that had kind of occurred shortly before I got there was that the rabbinate in the Orthodox Jewish world was conceived of, you know, as sort of a theological position. Uh, And your role as the rabbi was kind of to know the theology, understand Jewish law and Jewish practice and Jewish philosophy and so on and so forth. And what people began to realize maybe not in as ambitious a way as you're talking about, right? In other words, because you have churches in every zip code, you know, so the church can be this incredible force for good in the American context. But I think what religious or traditional religious groups were seeing in microcosm was that it was precisely pastors, rabbis, imams, or whomever it was, who are kind of on the ground with so many people in their respective communities. And if they're not prepared to address mental health issues, people are going to either fall by the wayside or actively harmed. And on the contrary, if they are prepared to address mental health issues, they can be force multipliers for the mental health field. And so I kind of experienced this transition where all of a sudden, alongside classes on you know biblical thought and philosophy and, and practice and so on, you would start to have classes like pastoral psychology. And it only got better and better as I kind of completed my rabbinical training. So my question to you is, as someone who is really at the forefront of media reporting and, and faith, are you seeing transitions like that in other faith communities, particularly in the Christian world? And how is it playing out? How have you seen this occur?
1: So there's always a rub, right? So the rub is that while the faith community can be this incredible resource for people who have emotional, mental issues— it's also traditionally been a place of harm, if you will. There is stigma. There's people who minimize the mental health challenge in the church, or they just categorize it as a spiritual issue when actually the person, there's chemical issues in their brain and they actually need medication. So there is, it's it's a tension, if you will. And so- a lot of the work that is initially begun is just what they call destigmatizing. In other words, bringing mental health issues out of the shadows and making it okay to talk about in the church. We're seeing this bubble up, if you will, from the pews, and we're also seeing it uh, come from pastors themselves because. If you have a mental health crisis in the country, that tells you that there's probably a lot of pastors and or someone they know who's close to them who's struggling. So it's starting to become very real. And in the book, I interviewed two pastors in particular, Bishop Walker at Mount Zion in Nashville, and then... Jack Graham at Prestonwood Baptist in Texas. And they both have had their own journeys and they both have shared them from the pulpit. Jack Graham did a whole series and they both have seen that really unleash, if you will, a conversation in their churches that really gave permission for people to talk about what they're really dealing with. And in turn, that allows the church to serve as a pivot point, if you will, to refer people to resources in the community and also just to come alongside people.
0: Just to go back to something that you said at the very beginning of that, which is that on this issue, there's always a rub, which is true of religion in general, right? There's always a rub. We invented rubs, right? (laughs) So like, you know, or catches. So I think of biblical faith as offering two types of responses to suffering. So the first is that the subjective experience of suffering is not the same thing as the reality of evil. So, like, if we could see things from God's perspective, we'd see the grand benevolent design behind what we experience as terrible. So basically, you know, suffering is a mirage or it's a spiritual problem, as you said. And I think that response to suffering works well as an exceeding and, you know, it's really powerful at the level of the community or the society, right? So, like, if you're a people that experience terrible persecution say, just speaking from our own experience, the Jews, you know, for centuries, or maybe the black community in America. So this approach to suffering is a way to make sense out of that oppression through history. Now, the Bible's second response. Is to acknowledge that suffering is terrible, right? To be really unflinching in in recognizing evil and to respond to it with the power of community and tradition. So I think that response works well for the individual by saying, yes, suffering and evil are awful, but we can cope with them and respond to them. And here are sort of practices you can have and leaders you can rely on and, and folks that you can lean on. So... The problem, I think, is that oftentimes the approach that works for the community or the nation, right, suffering as a mirage, ends up getting aimed at the individual where it might be harmful, right, where you're telling someone, no, your suffering's not real or it's a spiritual problem rather than a physiological problem. So how should we cope with that challenge, right? Is it important for biblical religion that believes in a benevolent God to be able to validate suffering at the individual level? Like, do we have to do a better job of validating individuals in their struggles? I think so.
1: I I think there is tremendous shame and guilt on the part of a lot of people who suffer. And they think that if they had a stronger faith that they, you know, or they're being told that, that if they had a stronger faith, they wouldn't be suffering the way they were. So I think absolutely those are important messages. You know, my hope is that this is going to be a growing conversation within faith communities. And I think the pandemic is Pushing us in that direction. And it's going to be really interesting as we all, God willing, come back to in-person services and, you know, just in-person events that we're able to share how we've been struggling. And 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 that's so challenging to know how to be transparent in the right way, if you will. And you can't be transparent with the whole world, obviously. But if you can't in your faith community, where can you?
0: And as you've done reporting on this, you know, for the book or just in general, have you come upon a story or, or, or an experience that has really just left its impression on you? Like, what's what's something that you've discovered or a person or a leader or, a, or someone suffering that you've discovered through your reporting on this that's really just left its mark on you?
1: Hmm. Let's see. There was a young woman that I met, and I'll call her Julie, and she discovered in her years, she got a bipolar diagnosis, and she has been in the Christian community. Uh, This is now fast forward, oh, let's say 15 years later or so, you know, really trying to make sense of how she is going to live her life. So many dreams dashed because she just simply cannot do the work that she had hoped to do because of her situation, because of her struggles. Uh, And she's also struggled to find a faith community that she can share what she's going through with. And and some of the things that she's told me, she said in her small group, she found it easier to share when she was having a physical health problem than she did when she was having hallucinations. She said that in the beginning, uh, people would tell her that they thought she was so spiritual because she would stay up all night doing Bible studies. And she came to realize that was not spiritual. That was not healthy. That was, you know, what was going on in my mind that was not right. So a very complicated journey and a journey for her as I'm continuing to follow her that's going to last for a lifetime. And, and she's got to figure out how is she going to find purpose and meaning in her life. And and she very much so wants to do it in her church community. But it's hard to find people who can begin to understand what she's going through So those kind of stories have made an impression on me. But also, there's a lot of innovators out there, and there's two things that I've gotten excited about, two trends, if you will. One is there's a peer group movement where people are organizing in groups that they're connected with the church in some way. Maybe they physically meet in the church, or maybe they meet outside, But people are finding that when they have a small group to walk through their journey, and their caregivers also have a small group to walk through the journey. That's incredibly helpful. And then the other piece is that there are more and more we're seeing what I would characterize as mini trainings that are taking place. The Wheaton College Humanitarian Disaster Institute does this. There's a group called Mental Health First Aid, and they offer a day or less training to people, and it really helps them to understand how to have conversations with people who are suffering, how to identify their most pressing need, how to pivot them towards hope. And I think really what can be done with just a small amount of training can be really significant. And so that encourages me.
0: That's amazing. And, you know, that kind of makes me think that as you're describing all of these developments, You know, as you said earlier, these are relevant for the future of church communities, for the future of the church in general in America. But given the role that biblical faith has played in America, it's interesting. We just saw, as I'm sure you may have seen, Gallup released this poll that church attendance in America is under 50 percent for the first time ever. But at the same time, you see a Pew report that came out shortly beforehand showing that Americans who identify themselves as spiritual or as spiritual seekers is is like skyrocketed. And so I think what we're seeing in many ways, at least the way I think about it, is that it's not that people are rejecting the product, they're just rejecting the platform. So people are finding that they want something. There's this real thirst for the transcendent, for the divine, for spirituality. And we kind of traditional religious groups have to step our game up and kind of reach people using the new innovative tools that we have. So in the coming generation, how can a force, you know, I speak from an Orthodox Jewish perspective and we're a relatively small community. I think we punch above our weight, (laughs) Uh, you know, but uh, but thinking about a community as large and, and influential as the Christian community, and I know it. you can subdivide it as many times as you can subdivide the Jewish community, but when you think about a community that large, and you think about the new tools that we're developing as a society from technology to medical and, and mental health related... If you could have a wish list for kind of a role or things that you want the Christian community to be in America in the future, the role that it can play in the future. What are some of the things in your wish list for what, you know, you might want to see in the future of of Christianity and the Christian church in America?
1: Uh, Okay, On one foot, you know, like a light question. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Well, let me just say briefly before that, you were mentioning that Gallup poll there's more to it than I think we initially all understood, and that is I was interviewing William VanderBlumen. He's with a pastoral executive search group, and he was saying that the Gallup poll is really just measuring membership which he said, that's not really the metric that they use anymore. A lot of people don't sign up and become members. They just attend. Mm. And so he said, that's not necessarily significant to look at membership. He said, there's other metrics like attendance, like involvement in the church that they're leaning more into right now. So I'm not sure how helpful that Gallup poll, how relevant that membership number still is. But as far as my wish list I think for the church to be a place (laughs) that—I guess I have two big wishes right now. One is uh, for churches to
0: be— we're working with genie rules, so you get at least three wishes. Oh, oh, you know? oh, oh okay, great, fantastic. <laughs> but two, so two, two, two is plenty. You still have one more even after.
1: Right. So one would be that churches would be places when it comes to mental health that are really leaning in, trying to think intentionally about the strengths that each faith community has and the needs that their community has and how they can meet those. You know, every community has different needs when it comes to mental health. But we do know that, for instance, right now, depression and anxiety are huge. There's a new meta-study that came out that looked at 12 studies and found the current adult depression rate is seven times higher than it was pre-pandemic. So this is something that churches need to sit down and thoughtfully address and even just acknowledge like this is going on. So that would be one wish. The other wish that I would really have in this era— is that churches would really be encouraging those in their faith community to think independently and think critically. I think that our country is, the word polarization comes to mind, right? But I think what we're seeing is people just adopting a political tribe, if you will, and then batting down the hatches and just accepting whatever that tribe tells them. And I think you know, the gospel emphasizes that our identity is in Christ, and that is the only identity that really matters. Everything else is secondary, your gender, your race, your whatever. And so my hope for the church is that we can really begin to pursue truth the way Jesus said, I am the truth, pursue truth. I'm hopeful that we can relearn how to think critically and independently in the church and not just accept whatever is coming down the pike from our particular source that we like to get our information from.
0: So as you think about the future of this country, as you were just talking about, you know, and one of the things that I I think about often is declining biblical literacy, and I see that as one of the urgent crises for this country, also one of the incredible opportunities it's sort of a double-edged sword in that respect. You know, our country, its history, its trajectory, its moments of of grandeur, and also its, its moments of failure, I think are like basically completely incomprehensible without the language and vocabulary and values of the Bible. From the founding era through the Civil War, through the Civil Rights era, and the New Deal even before that, and to today. So to the extent that a sort of revival of American life, a revitalization of American life, I think will come from the capacity for imagination, the willingness to invest to in the future that traditional religious communities have for thousands of years, been really good at incubating. So, you know, if we think about the Bible, for example, as being a source, maybe the key source, of a revitalized, reimagined American future, if you could think of like, One verse or character or thing in the Bible that you wish kind of more people would know about as we think about these future conversations? What would you think about? Character, verse, like what do you wish people knew more about as we look forward towards an American future?
1: I think one of the overall themes of the Bible is that God allows us to go through incredibly hard times and is testing our faith. And I think we've all been like babes to a degree in the U.S. because what hard times have we gone through collectively, right, as a nation for many, many decades until this pandemic? And I think this pandemic has thrown a lot of us off our game, if you will, because we're not used to suffering on this collective level. And I think that that's all throughout the Bible, right? The story of Exodus, if you will. That's all about people collectively suffering. And so what we're experiencing with this pandemic on one hand is so new, and on the other hand, there's nothing new under the sun. People have suffered greatly in the past and turned to God for their grounding, for their perspective and framing. And God has used suffering as a way to develop the faith of his people. And so I think The Bible, for me, has been incredibly grounding this last year as a reminder that we are to expect suffering in life, and we should not be surprised by it, even though we often are. And I have really appreciated that perspective and tried to immerse myself in that and tried to, I will tell you, Ari, limit my news intake, and I'm a journalist. (sighs) <laughs> but let me but tell it, you've you, incre- you got to limit it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you've increased your podcast intake, though, I, I, oh, I assume. Right, 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 right. I'm selective. You know, Heather, one last thing I'd love to cover is resources, right? So, what are some of the resources that you're familiar with that you have found helpful in thinking about this issue, whether from your tradition or from another tradition? <gasps>
1: What's really interesting is that the research shows that when people do have an emotional struggle, a mental health struggle, after talking to family or friends, they tend to go to their church. They tend to go to their faith community for help. And so we are seeing more and more churches that are in turn connecting with mental health resources in their community so that if the church itself is not able to help someone, they can refer. And that is a great thing. So- I would always encourage people to, if they feel that they are just at their wits end, to talk with their pastor, their faith leader. And some of those pastors and faith leaders are really starting to have this on their radar. And in fact, I talked with one psychiatrist. His name is David Rosmarin. He's a psychiatrist at the Harvard Medical School, and he consults regularly with rabbis. He said, you'd be amazed what we can do in a five-minute conversation. Say a rabbi who he has met will give him a call and say, I've got someone who I'm working with and they're really struggling with sleep or they're really struggling with whatever. And he's able to pass on a few resources, a few tips to the rabbi who then can work with that person, and it's just a way to short-circuit the whole process and immediately provide an intervention, if you will. So definitely, I would encourage people to connect with their pastor, their faith leader as a starting point, and if not, they can take it to another level.
0: What can people in the pews do to destigmatize that process, make it more accessible, more approachable, more acceptable? What can people do on that front?
1: I think one of the things that we're all learning to do is to listen and to feel free to ask the next follow-up question, if you will. So if you're talking with someone and they give you a little hint— that maybe their week was not so fine to ask a follow-up question and to be engaged and present and give that direct eye contact. You know, that's another concern for our young generation that is growing up on phones, right, to learn how to have a present conversation in person where we're really trying to go to the next level with someone else. So I think that's something that as we all are beginning to come back more and more in person that we can be intentional about is listening well uh, with other people.
0: It is such a pleasure to learn from you. Where can people find you? They can watch Newswatch on on CBN. Where can they find you on the uh, on the social media?
1: I'm on Twitter, but go to CBNnews.com. You'll see my stories and our book, but it's going to be a little while before it comes out. University Press will be publishing that, and we're excited about that.
0: Heather, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. This is a precarious moment in the history of the human psyche. Every single one of us across the world has been beaten down by the trauma of this past year in a wide variety of different ways. Now, most of us aren't specialists, professionals, so we're not out there, God forbid, offering medical advice or anything like that. But what can we do to help? I think the best thing we can do, as Heather said, is listen, keep our ears and hearts open, be supportive and caring, don't stigmatize suffering, and certainly don't stigmatize the decision to seek help. And if we can do those things, we'll hopefully be bringing just a little more light into a world that could really use it. Guys, thanks so much for joining me today. If you like what you heard, if you enjoyed this, The best thing that you can do is give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, just hit me up on Twitter so I can let the world know that you are amazing. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. See you next time.
1: faith effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam, and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com.
0: The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.